hello and welcome to Recap, Per Capita's research and policy podcast where we examine inequality and unpack our latest work in our fight for a fairer Australia. We're coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation whose lands were never ceded and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. I'm Matt Lloyd Cape, the Director for the Centre of Equitable Housing. Uh, here at Per Capita, and I'm your host this week. Today I'm joined by our esteemed Executive Director, Emma Dawson, and our Research Economist, Sam Ibrahim. Um, so, uh, welcome guys. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. It's been a very busy few weeks at Per Capita, particularly with the launch of our new initiative, which is the subject of today's discussion, the Australian Inequality Index. Emma, this is a special project for you and the team here. Tell us what the index is and how it came about. Thanks, Matt. It is a special project. It's something we've been wanting to do for years, actually. Uh, it first came up at a per capita board meeting, I think, about five years ago. Um, and the idea of it was really to produce a better, more accurate and more detailed measure of inequality in Australia um, and how it's changing over time. Uh, so we, we all know, you know, standard measures of inequality, like the Gini coefficient and others, are, are based from, on pretty standard uh, economic data. Uh, who's earning what, who owns what, uh, and those issues of income and wealth are really important. But as we know from our work, uh, it was pursuing uh, policies for social justice in this country, uh, there are a lot of factors, particularly immutable factors of one's character, of one's um, situation in life, that can exacerbate inequality. So as well as those two indices on income inequality and wealth inequality, we have uh, broken our data down into some other sub-indices. So we look at inequality according to gender, mm. ethnicity, uh, disability, rates of disability, uh, whether or not you're a First Nations Australian, because we know uh, they're amongst our most disadvantaged people in the world, First Nations Australians. And then we have an intergenerational sub-index as well that really looks at how uh, the different um, policies that have been put in place over time or developments in the economy uh, have affected different generations of Australians. Uh, so it's been a bit of a passion project for us. Mm. Um, and the other really important thing about it is we, we're using it, I think, to democratise this data and make it available to people in the community that otherwise might not have access to the kinds of uh, clever data crunching and, and data analysis that Sam and those and Michael and our team have put together for the index. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is something we talked about a few years ago, which was we were talking about an economic measures series. We didn't get it off the ground because we had so much other work to do. Mm. Um, so it's really exciting to see this come to fruition and to have the firepower of Sam and Mike to, to put it into practice. It so, sure is. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the process you went through in the design of the index framework. Yeah, so we um, obviously, with, we, we work with data a lot here. Um, and uh, we try to translate that data into compelling stories, compelling narratives that explain why our economy and our society works the way it does. Um, and when we came to think about the index, it was really about marrying up that, um, that lived experience of inequality with a more um, robust and quantitative measure of how those different experiences play out in our society. Um, we also knew from previous work we'd done on the gender equity report, uh, on various work you did for um, looking at different generational costs for housing, for example, that there is a lack of data in a lot of these areas as well. Um, and so that was something else we wanted to uncover with this. But really the purpose of it is to create a tool that's more nuanced. We have finally 
in Australia sort of caught up with some of our nearest neighbours in New Zealand. We're looking at wellbeing budgets at the federal level. Mm -hmm. uh, big, you know, consultation out over the last few months from the federal government about measuring what matters. Uh, and the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has talked about that a lot, including in his chapter in the book that we uh, put out in 2020, What Happens Next. And our desire with this is to really bring data together and be able to look at those intersections of uh, forms and, and causes of disadvantage to inform that national conversation about, well, what does matter to us if we are getting richer as a country, you know, if our GDP is growing, our aggregate wealth is growing, but that's not translating into equal benefits for people across our society, is that actually a worthy policy goal? And, you, mm. know, you know, I think it's not, that growth on its own without adequate distribution and the improvement of living standards is a pretty pointless pursuit. So uh, that's the point of this, is to shed some light on those issues. Mm-hmm, great. So I, one question I suppose um, that some of our listeners might have is, why are we worrying so much about inequality and not focusing on so much on poverty? Mm. Poverty, you, it's very, you, it's very visceral. You <laughs> yeah. understand when someone hasn't got a roof over their head or not enough food in their mouth. Why are we focusing on the inequality side of things and not just inequality? It's a really uh, important poverty. question, Matt, and a really important point. Uh, poverty is, you know, um, is an outcome of gross inequality, uh, and it's a terrible outcome and one that we want to alleviate. But it actually doesn't matter how privileged you personally are in society. If society becomes too unequal, too extremely unequal, it has bad effects for all of us. Um, so we, you know, we talk a little <coughs> in the introduction to the uh, summary report about our index, about the work of Thomas Piketty um, uh, about 15 years ago, uh, inequality in the 21st century, where he, uh, you know, demonstrated not a new idea, goes back to older political economists, anyone who's uh, a Polanyi fan will understand and recognise this, that that the more unequal a society gets, the less stable it becomes. And particularly in the democratic era, if inequality is allowed to expand to the point where there's a whole heap of people that just feel left out of our commonwealth, of our social contract, then that actually undermines their faith in democracy and in democratic institutions. And we're seeing this, you know, Piketty published his masterwork uh, before the rise of Trump in America, before Brexit in the UK, before the turn of many formerly solidly social democratic countries in, the, in Europe to, uh, to electing harder right governments. And that's because there is a growing number of people at the bottom of society, and I'm not just talking about the bottom 10%, I'm talking about the bottom half, who feel increasingly cut out from our Commonwealth, from the idea that if they do the right thing, if they work hard, they will make a good life for themselves. And that's particularly pertinent, I think, in Australia where we prided ourselves on being the land of the fair go, that if you, you could come to Australia from anywhere in the world, uh, obviously with the great exception of this fair go did not apply to our First Nations people for far too long and hopefully the voice will begin to change that. Uh, please vote yes in the referendum. Um, but you could come to Australia from anywhere in the world and if you worked hard enough, you could build a good middle class life. That it didn't matter uh, the wealth of your parents didn't matter, you could make it on your own. That social mobility was a feature of our young settler society. Uh, and what we're seeing here with, with our findings and with a lot of research done over recent years is that we have really undermined that social mobility. So young people in particular are now 
um, even if they've done exactly what they were told to do, they've finished high school, they've gone and got a degree, um, they've you know tried to put down roots and get on with their lives, it's much harder to get a job that is a permanent contract, that has sick pay and annual leave, that pays you enough, that your wages grow enough for you to be able to save a deposit for a home or even to have a secure rental property. Um, and so the things that we've removed, a lot of the institutional supports that were in place in the post-war years that really did give people that leg up, that ability to build a good life, we mm. have removed over the last 30 to 40 years. And we're seeing the impact of that now, not only in the housing market, but in the fact that uh, it takes something like 10 years for the average graduate now um, to realise any benefit from their degree. And our, mm -hmm. our colleague Shirley Jackson's done a heap of work on this. So yeah. inequality is important not only because we should have a you know much more fair distribution we're a very wealthy country we shouldn't have anyone living in poverty in a country as wealthy as ours but because if it expands to that degree then a whole chunk of society feel alienated from from our democracy and you begin to get those social divisions you get a lot of culture wars people will attack others based on the most you know um, unreasonable things that they've been told to worry about that immigrant taking your job rather than the boss that's stealing your wages mm. um, but it does lead to a situation in which it's very difficult to make progress as a society it's difficult for us to come together and agree on the things that need to be done to make things better and it fractures those those social contracts that are so important to the social democratic project so if you were just a layperson coming mm. to this index, um, are you going to be able to access the data, understand what's going on when you open up the website? Is that something that the average person without any data training can do? Um, we've, we've made it as user-friendly as possible. I might throw over to Sam here because he's actually designed the data tool. And I think the, the intention behind it certainly was uh, to allow particularly community organisations and non-profits that understand what they're looking for in the data but don't have perhaps the resources to hire you know, a, a big four consultant or someone mm. to do this work for them, that they would have access to tools on our website that enable them to inform applications for grants, um, lobbying uh, local councils and others for in investments in infrastructure. Um, and so what we've been able to do with the uh, looking at the different measures and the different data sets that Michael and um, the team pulled together, that he and Sam have then turned that into a tool that people can jump onto the website and play around with that data and get different mm. outcomes for it. Is that right, Sam? Yes, so all of the users can go onto inequalityindex.org.au and see the tool there. Um, but there is also a detailed methodology along with the data itself that people can access. So they can recreate the analy analysis itself and see how exactly we've come to those figures and make sure that we're not just cooking the books or mm -hmm. skewing things to show what we want it to show, for example. So Sam, um, you, you've got a background as a data scientist, which I think has been really useful in this project for um, translating some of the numbers and data into trends and patterns that people can see. Can you um, talk us through that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So the project as a tool is a little bit more complicated on the back end than it is on the front end. I tried to make it as simple as possible for users to use. Um, mainly what we want users to know is that for the index there's a scale of 0 to 100, 0 being equality and anything other than that being inequality, and the higher the number the greater the inequality. So that's the baseline and then you can just have a look at whether or not it's trending upwards or downwards and that's important because for the overall inequality index 
it's trending downwards. So we know that we're at least a little bit on the right track, even though it will take a very long time for inequality to eventually be reached. But for the sub-indexes, that's not the case. So for wealth, intergenerational, and disability indexes, inequality is actually increasing. Mm-hmm. So looking at the trend line in that particular sense is really important so that we can see where we need to improve and where we need to completely shift our outlook. Because in those sub-indexes, it's not just we're not reaching inequality soon enough, it's if we continue things as they are, we will never reach inequality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, um, equality. Equality. <laughs> equality. <laughs> so let's go yeah. that. Yeah. And I think that's Yeah, really we've important. got inequality licked, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing that great. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really important point, and it's something that comes up in the sort of broader mm. data development community, people talking at the UN about what is the role of composite indicators, do they obscure Mm. more than they reveal? And I think the sub-indices here is really important. So in terms of some of the highlights or lowlights, I guess, of the Mm sub-indices, where are we really falling down? Well, as I just said, disability, wealth and intergenerational Mm. um, inequality is massive and growing, particularly wealth. as you might be able to speak to, Matt, as the director of the Housing Centre, a big part of that is the um, being able to be in the housing market and therefore have that massive um, asset. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think the striking thing, the first thing to say is obviously, and and the richest data uh, informed in sub-indices, the First uh, First Nations uh, index, -index. sub-index, and uh, Indigenous Australians certainly are the most deeply disadvantaged by cohort uh, in anything we look at, and certainly by global standards. So we just we just can't ignore that. That's the big elephant in the room. But Sam's point's really important because if you look at the wealth sub uh, the wealth sub index, the inequality in wealth, which is the the things you own, not what you earn on a weekly basis, but what you own, is growing rapidly. And that is exacerbating into generational inequality because, of course, you acquire assets as you get older. As you earn a bit of money, you buy a car, then hopefully you buy a house, and that's happening less and less for younger people. Mm. So that divide generationally is really strong, um, and it is largely due to the growth in asset prices for the wealthiest. And we're not we're not unlike other developed nations in this regard. We're not nearly as unequal yet unequal yet as the US is, um, but we've certainly. I think um, what we've seen, and we look at inequality since 2010 in this index, and our intention is to build on it year on year, to build those longitudinal data sets. But we've seen a significant spike in wealth inequality since about 2016 in this country, and we are now today less equal on that basis than we were in 2010. Mm. And Emma, you bring up a really good point about the First Nations indicators, which are based on the Productivity Commission's Closing the Gap initiative, because we know that the First Nations are one of the most disadvantaged communities in Australia, and yet the Inequality Index says that um, inequality is decreasing. Mm. And part of the reason for that is because those indicators from the Closing the Gap initiative are chosen because they are in part achievable within two generations. And so part of this um, project is also to implore government and other organisations to collect better data and better quality data Mm. so that we can collect data that's a little bit more relevant to policy making decisions. Yeah. 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 And I think that's one of the challenges we found with this project, which we knew we would going in because we work with data a lot, Mm. is the limitations on the data that's available. And as Sam said, with something like First Nations indicators where we have uh, used a lot of those from the Productivity Commission and closing the gap, 
They tend to be things that are politically doable. Uh, but in other areas that we looked at, like gender, for example, we don't collect data properly yet on people of diverse gender identities. Mm -hmm. We don't collect enough data on people's sexual orientations and how that might disadvantage them. We don't have nearly enough intersectional data about people with disabilities. Um, and so we have traditionally taken a very high level look at the community and broken it down by very traditional standards. That's starting to improve. We're starting to see some more investment in better data gathering, but one of the things we want to do with this tool is really demonstrate where that lack of information can lead to bad decisions and, and, and decisions being made on inadequate information. And we're hoping that the index itself will go some way towards enabling people to cross-reference and look at, at the different intersecting causes of inequality. Ultimately, this tool is an attempt to shed light on exactly what's happening and why, mm. and to move that conversation out of sort of elite policy-making circles and uh, enable people that are working in community orgs or individuals or people in local government that really want to understand what's going on in their area to have access to that information. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, if you look at, um, I mean, the ABS is working really hard to uh, broaden out their ability to measure the outcomes for gender diverse individuals. Um, and I think that'll be a long process, and obviously we won't have the longitudinal data to understand trends for like, those communities, but there is clearly a shift in um, the data and uh, policy making community to really capture a broader range of data points. And yeah. hopefully, with this new Labour government injecting a bit more money into the ABS, um, there'll be more opportunities to, to get more measures. And, you know, I mean, just an example from the housing space um, under the, I don't want to get too political, but under the previous government, there was a withdrawal of funding from the ABS mm. um, pretty consistently. And that led the ABS to make some decisions about what they measured. So, in the housing space, um, they essentially outsourced their capability to measure house prices to a private sector organisation mm. uh, and it's no longer publicly available, yeah. which, you know, is only bad for, <laughs> for good uh, policy making and community engagement around policy making, around, you know, Indigenous housing. We know that Indigenous Australians own, you know, about 40% of Indigenous Australians own a home compared to 66% of um, the general population mm. and mm. having that data there and available is really important. So hopefully, the I think the the index will really stimulate the conversation further. Yeah, and it comes along at the right time, you know. And I'll I'll give a shout out here to and Andrew Lee, who's now the minister uh, in charge of the ABS, um, formerly Australia's youngest ever professor of economics, and uh, certainly a fellow data nerd. So if there's anyone that's going to fix our data problems, uh, anyone can do it, Andrew can. So go, Andrew, give us some more data, and we'll uh, make this index even richer than it has been already. Mm. And as a as a housing nerd, I think seeing the rewarding of asset owners mm. over labour, mm. you know, over workers is very clearly, you know, it's not just poor economics, but poor democratic process. And yeah. increasingly, people feel locked out of the housing market. They see the rewards going to asset owners, mm. and I think as a driver for um, causing some of these inequalities that we're seeing, the rewards to asset holders over to workers is very clear. Mm. And I think that's probably reflected in the indexes. Sam, have you got any reflections on that? So as Emma said, Piketty demonstrated that economic inequality is not an accident, but actually a feature of capitalism. A feature that without adequate intervention from the state to redistribute those benefits from economic growth and prosperity will threaten to destroy even the most advanced economies such as ours. This is because inequality is oftentimes deliberately hidden or downplayed by leaders of the system. 
Extreme inequality is, ex is excused, especially by those who benefit the most from it as the result of individual choices or an unfortunate byproduct of necessary economic growth. And we know that not to be the case. No one is at fault for their own skin color or their gender, and yet we see through the index that there are inequalities based on these factors. And this is exactly what we want people to use it for. We want people to go and use the tool at inequalityindex.org.au and be able to see that, hang on, yes, there is inequality, and that might be a little bit par for the course depending on which schools of economic thought you belong to. But also, it's not just um, overall inequality. It has to do with specific factors about a person that are immutable to who they are, gender, um, ethnicity, um, whether or not they are disabled, whether or not they belong to a First Nation. And so people can use this information how, however they please, but we hope they send it to their local member and say, hang on, there's a whole lot of inequality here and there's nothing I can do about it. Is there anything that you can do as a parliamentarian, to rep as a representative of me in this community to change that? Yeah, I mean, we all know that um, it's, it, look, it's information and evidence that drives good policy. But it's also really important um, from our perspective that, uh, you know, the way that we work at Per Capita, sure, we talk to policy makers, we talk to politicians, um, we talk to people from the community sector and the union movement and, and various um, institutions that are involved in our democracy. But our most important conversation is with the public mm. because if people understand, people have this, this is a very, you know, there are huge pockets of anger in our community already. People that can't get a secure roof over their head or who can't um, hold on to a decent job or can't even pull themselves out of poverty because the rate of income support's so low. Mm. But what we want to do is educate people as to why that's happening, that it's part of a bigger a bigger phenomenon that is seeing a return to the kinds of 19th century levels of wealth inequality that really drove so much conflict in the first part of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And coming out of that, we had bold, visionary leaders in the post-war era that said, we're not going to go back to that. We're not going to go back to what we had in the Great Depression, where routinely 15% of people were unemployed, just standing on a dock waiting for someone to give them a day's work, mm -hmm. that there was no social housing, there was no universal health care. These things were put in place to build a fairer, more equal society in which people could take advantage of opportunities and build a good life. And so creating something like the index gives people the tools and the frame of reference to understand where their personal experience of this fits into a bigger picture and how, if we pull on particular policy strings, we may make things better or worse. Yeah. We want to inform a public conversation that will then give our leaders the confidence to make the kinds of changes that we know are needed in order to restore that fair go because of the community demanding it from them. Excellent. Um, so I kind of came of age, I was a young teenager when Blair was ushered into power in the UK. And that era of um, Labour governments, there was a tendency to be fairly comfortable with rising inequality as long as poverty was being reduced. Mm. Emma, you speak to a lot of politicians. Mm. Um, do you think that um, that general position has changed significantly. What sort of appetite are you seeing amongst politicians um, for this kind of grand change to the overall arc of where we want, what sort of society we want to generate? Look, I think for the first time in a long time we do have a government that in Australia um, 
that cares about this stuff, that understands this stuff. I mean, again, I'll mention Andrew Lee's done a great deal of work on inequality over the years. We've got a lot of PhDs research. in Parliament at the moment. We've got a lot of PhDs in We've got three uh, Ivy League or, you know, um, PhDs in economics um, in the in the Labor Party alone. Uh, we've got a, a Barbara Pocock in the Greens has got, you know, an outstanding understanding of this stuff, um, being a, an industrial relations and lawyer, uh, academic and done a lot of work on gender inequality in particular. Um, there are people in our parliament who understand it. The challenge, of course, is that there are forces that drive our political conversation and that drive our economy that have a lot of skin in the game of maintaining inequality. They have a lot of skin in the game of maintaining those structures that will advantage people that already have assets. The asset holders are, by their nature, wealthy enough to spend a lot of money lobbying parliaments to keep things in their favour. Mm. Um, and those who don't have that kind of financial power, that economic power, um, are often not heard in the conversation. I think that's shifting. I think it's shifting generationally because they were a much more educated population. Um, I think that uh, you know we, we're seeing that women and young people are turning away from a kind of conflict politics and the politics of uh, of, of you know promoting the rich to get richer. Um, and we do, I think, have an opportunity uh, in Australia. We have uh, a centre-left government when you know um, parts of the rest of the world are moving. Uh, more towards sort of right-wing strongmen um, to make some real changes now and some real investments over time. Mm. It's not easy, you know. It's it's after after thirty or forty years of effectively undermining um, the social democratic state and those institutions that were put in place after the Second World War. You can't, like I think you said many times with the housing market, um, that you can't turn that ship around overnight. Mm. Right? But I think there is absolutely a willingness and openness to understanding that. Um, and I was heartened that on the night of the 2022 election, the, the very first thing and the priority that the Prime Minister put on the table for this country was the voice referendum. Because that's a question about what kind of country we want to be. Mm -hmm. Do we want to recognise the truth of our past? and be a more inclusive nation that recognises that we are a colonial state and that we have disenfranchised First Nations people. And that's a question about, as I said, what kind of country we want to be. And from that flows a whole other conversation that we'll have to look at the housing market, have to look at our tax and transfer system, mm. our welfare state, and, and building a stronger, more diverse economy that can support the kinds of public services and institutional supports that people need. So I am a relentless optimist. I couldn't mm -hmm. do this job if I wasn't. Uh, it's not easy, um, but we, we saw, you know, a lot of people still very despairing about the 2019 election result. There, there was a, you know, a real um, tax reform program there that would have gone a long way towards reversing some of the distortions in our economy. And I think there was a great deal of despair that the Australian people had rejected that program. I don't think that's the case. I think actually when we go out and we do surveys and we talk to people with the housing survey we found mm. the overwhelming appetite in the in the community is for a fairer Australia, is for an, uh, an Australia where our kids get a go to build a good life, where you don't uh, automatically experience disadvantage or discrimination based on the colour of your skin or whether you have a disability or your gender or your sexual preferences. Um, that is, as we saw in the marriage equality vote, overwhelmingly the the mood of the Australian people. I think mm. they're um, 
eager for a return to a more equal Australia and we just want to help them get there. Yeah, that's right. I think there's, <laughs> there's certainly a feeling that, um, yeah, the people are leading the politicians now, I think, and um, hopefully we'll see some great changes. Uh, Sam, remind us where we can find the index. At inequalityindex.org.au. Great. And you can also get to it from our homepage, percapita.org.au. We're taking over the internet. We've got you know, sub-sites for the Centre for Equitable <laughs> Housing, the Centre for New Industry. We're everywhere, folks. And um, we're, in, we're in your socials as well. So yeah. if you want to follow what we do, please do find us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, and, yeah, follow our work. Thanks so much, everybody. That's all the time we've got for today. A bit of a wide-ranging conversation from small, detailed data all the way through to <laughs> grand social change. Um, but thanks so much for listening. Um, Emma, thank you. Sam, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Thank you. This show is a production of Per Capita, the independent progressive think tank dedicated to fighting inequality in Australia. We work to build a new vision for Australia based on fairness, shared prosperity, community and social justice, and we're committed to providing ad-free and editorially independent content. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. We also acknowledge that these lands uh, were stolen, never ceded, and they are the lands that were cared for by the First Nations people of this country for the last 60,000 years, and that this is, was, and always will be Aboriginal land. Join us next time, and we'll continue to examine inequality and unpack our latest work in our fight for a fairer Australia.